Hello and welcome to What's the Big Deal About Greenville. My guest today is a man who has a huge impact on the students of Greenville County. Uh, he took time out of his busy schedule to sit down and talk with me. I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, he is a longtime educator and superintendent of Greenville County Schools, Dr. Burke Royster. Enjoy. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Glad to be part of your uh, podcast today. And obviously, this will be a very uh, a busy time for you getting uh, the school year. Uh, but I did want to uh, kind of give you an opportunity to talk about your background. Uh, usually, start off the podcast talking about um, uh, the person's background, just so you know a little bit uh, or listeners a little, little bit about you. Um, so, how did you how did you find yourself here in Greenville? Well, this is uh, actually it's my second time here. Uh, most people, uh, I don't think. I wouldn't know that, but uh, the very first administrative job I had uh, in 1983-84, I was an assistant principal at Montevue Middle School, which doesn't exist anymore. It's set on the site of the current Montevue Elementary School. And that, at that time, there were two schools there. There was Montevue Elementary and Montevue Middle School. And I was there for two years. And then had the opportunity to go to Northwestern High School in Rock Hill, South Carolina, as a high school assistant principal. Uh, but so I was here in the mid-80s. And then I had the chance to come back here as a deputy superintendent in 2005. So I served from 2005 until the spring of 2012 as uh, the deputy superintendent in, in our system. You, you probably know this. Your listeners mm -hmm. may not. That's kind of the number two job in the district, the day-to-day -day operations of the school district. And I served in that role uh, up until becoming superintendent and then was selected to be the uh, 10th superintendent of the Greenville County School System uh, since its consolidation in the early 1950s and have served in that role since uh, March of uh, or April of 2012. As uh did you always have a passion for education or had you always followed that path or is this something well, that just kind of came into your life? Not, not necessarily. Uh, although I grew up in a family, both my parents were educators. In fact, my dad was a school superintendent. Uh, I can uh, relate to that. He, he was superintendent of schools in uh, Anderson School District 5, which is where mm -hmm. I grew up. Uh, and he was superintendent there for 16 years. And my mom was a school librarian, at least uh, mm -hmm. part part of the, the time that I was growing up. Um, so I, I, I got, um, I was exposed to all that, you know, at home and, and heard that talk at the dinner table and was around all that. Uh, and a lot of that was during a very, uh, similar to the time we're in right now, different, obviously different era, mm -hmm. but a very challenging time because that was uh, when I was in junior high school was the time of school desegregation. Mm. Uh, so yep. I kind of saw that firsthand, the things that my dad did and went through and uh, in that period of leadership. And of course, we're now in a, in a most unusual time, what we're dealing with. Absolutely. Obviously different, but similar in a lot of challenges to it and uh, a lot of opinions about how things might ought to be done or handled. So a little, a little similarity there. Um, but, uh, my, actually my undergraduate degree is in both political science and secondary education. 
And I looked at doing a number of things and had a few uh, opportunities outside of the field of education. I graduated from Clemson in 80, uh, but decided that I would teach, and I taught and coached for three years, really kind of to see, was that what I wanted to do or give me a little bit of time to decide? I thought one time about perhaps going to law school and becoming an attorney. Uh, but what, I found what, what I, did you teach, if you don't mind me asking? What, what did, I taught, what did you teach? actually taught eighth grade math. Uh, oh, okay. And, and found that, that I really enjoyed it. And and within that that three years, uh, I also saw uh, what I thought was kind of an opportunity to have a broader impact mm-hmm. than, than teaching so many students in so many classes each day. And that sort of spurred my interest in administration. And I went, really began uh, the first year I was out of, undergraduate and started my master's and finished that in a couple of years and was very fortunate to be selected uh, to become an assistant principal here uh, under the leadership of Fred Woods, who was the the principal at Montevideo at that time. He's he's now retired, but actually serves as a hearing officer for the school district. Uh, So things just just sort of seem to fall in place from that point forward. You'd mentioned like just having a being in a kind of a tumultuous time, you know, a time of transition. Um, what, how do you have a cohesive vision? I get, I was trying to formulate this question. How did you have a cohesive vision when you have different voices coming to you? How do you make everybody feel heard? How do you, how do you take action? That to me seems like a large part of the job, but can you provide some insight into that? You know, what, kind of the approach that, that we have taken consistently throughout this process, we've looked to experts, so people in public health, people in the medical profession. We obviously get our information from DHEC, which is the, uh, the state agency for public health in South Carolina. But we've also consulted with PRISMA, the lo- local hospital system here in Greenville, and Bon Secours St. Francis, also a local hospital system here in Greenville. Had some conversations with the Medical University of South Carolina. So we've tried to gather all our information from what should be objective, scientific, medically-based sources. What should we be doing? Now, obviously, even that environment is, to a degree, fluid. Because, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, because I'm sure you've read things and followed things about this virus and, and other people sure. have as well, yeah. uh, there's a reason it's referred to as a novel virus. In that it is, although like some others, it is also unlike others, and it's yet to be fully defined. So it's a, a fluid environment. But we've tried to follow the guidance of experts and rely on facts and not opinion, because everybody's got an opinion about it. We've all got an opinion. Absolutely. We want to go with uh, objective, fact-based information. Mm-hmm. We take that information and utilizing the people within our system that are expert in different areas of school operations, whether that be uh, health services or or transportation or facilities or the, uh, the side that most people think about in our primary mission, the academic side. We had those people work within this framework that we got from experts to put together plans. And there's, there's some 80, 88 pages of pandemic response 
plan specific to the coronavirus. We actually had a pandemic response plan that we wrote in, uh, as part of our emergency response plan in the late 2000s, 2008. But it was a very minimal document. It really talked more about continuing the business operations, right. you know, making sure everybody got paid, yeah. th- things like that. Didn't really factor in that there might be this wholesale shutdown and how we might address that. So we formulated all these plans. Then is, we, the, is this, excuse me, is the city all, all involved in that as well? Um, do you try and stay, do you try we, and kind of stay on the same path or? We communicate back and forth with other agencies hmm. and we also talk to other school districts, but, but we wrote a draft plan internally using guidance and, and advice from experts, talking with other people. What are you looking at in your plan? We then rolled that plan out to various constituencies. So parents, business community, representative groups, because obviously as large as this community is, you, you, you can't, even with, with teachers, for example, we rolled out uh, to our teacher forum, which as you know, mm-hmm. that's the teachers of the year from every school in the district. Yes. Well, where we couldn't go out and ask all nearly 6,000 teachers and get dialogue. You can poll, we can survey, which we did at one point. We surveyed all the teachers. Uh, but really to get kind of meaningful back and forth dialogue, you have to deal with a smaller group. So teachers, some representative employee groups. We have an inner high council, which are elected student leaders from each high school. So we took the plan out to these various groups and got their comments, their feedback, their questions, their suggestions. So they gave input after we had a draft in place. And when you talk to other school districts, in fact, I was part of a webinar earlier today, middle of the day, where uh, there were four of us on there, four different school districts, talking with a, with a group, with an audience, about planning for the pandemic. And really it fell, the four school districts, the four superintendents, fell into two groups. They either had people on committees who helped write the plan, or they did what we did, wrote the draft, then put it out to groups to comment and provide input. And it, and it seemed to work better with the larger districts to do the draft and put it out as opposed to bringing the people in to do the design from the outset. I see. But, 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 you know, either, either methodology seemed more, because it reaches, it accomplishes the same goal, but you've gotten the input from multiple audiences that are affected by what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And this wouldn't just apply to COVID. This would be, this would be any major o- overhaul like you would, you would bring in the community to ask. And, um, you know, those wouldn't be, and in fact, we routinely utilize, uh, for example, PTA and SIC groups in the school. Mm-hmm. We regularly meet with the teacher forum uh, once a month with the leadership. Uh, then the entire group, eh, a couple of times a year, sometimes more, like this past year, more times uh, because of uh, the things we were asking their input. The inner high council that I mentioned earlier, our elected students, uh, we meet with them monthly. So we're constantly getting input. So it might be what would seem to be a very large issue or decision. Or sometimes it might be something as small as the inner high group has uh, has served as a test kitchen for food service. So like think about offering something different on the menu. Yeah. Prepare it and serve it because we meet with that group at lunchtime. 
Yeah. They'll serve them different samples at lunch. It's all, what do you think about this? Do you like this? Do you think other students would like it? So anything from a, how we conducted graduation at the end of last year to have that mm-hmm. in-person graduation we were able to have for all of our seniors, they were an integral part of that. That's a pretty big decision mm-hmm. all the way to, well, do you like these St. Louis ribs? So yeah. valuable uh valuable tools for us, uh, both the forum and the inner high council to, to get uh, feedback and opinions and to have discussion, which is challenging when you're, when you're our size, 70 something thousand students, right? Nearly 10,000 employees, almost 6,000 teachers that that can become a real challenge. So that's a good way to do that. And it also creates a group of people that, that hopefully can go back into their school and help communicate within their school because they tend to know more about the big picture because mm-hmm. they got an opportunity that others yeah. you know, can't have. It's not it's not possible to do that with everybody. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they go back and share that with others, which gives a little more insight into how things work. Uh, you know, w- when I was in my classroom, I, I I clearly understood what went on with the wall within the walls of my classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I coached as well, I understood some things that occurred beyond those walls and had some other responsibilities at the school. Well, the more you kind of get outside the wall of the, your classroom, you kind of get some added broader perspective. Well, mm-hmm. but for a teacher on an ordinary day, they have plenty to do focusing mm-hmm. inside their classroom. Absolutely. They necessarily have the opportunity or time to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to have a group that's have an exposure to a broader perspective to go back and share that as they have time to do it and as others have time to have those kind of discussions. Right. Have it, I, now, I've been on both sides of that um, in my career. And, uh, yeah, it does have it, it provides you with a lot of insights on, like, the inner workings of how things are and helps you better understand, like you say, helps you better understand, like, why the decisions were made and, what went into making them. Um, what's your typical day look like? Um, is it, do you try and get to the office at a certain time? What it does, is every day different? Uh, some, they kind of start in a very similar manner, but mm-hmm. then they deviate depending on the, the day of the week and what's going on. But I mean, generally, you know, I've always gotten up pretty early. So I go to walk, Kind of read read the news, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Eat breakfast. Like to be at the office seven to seven fifteen. Mm-hmm. If I'm gonna go and visit some schools that day, I may start directly there instead of going to the office. Yeah. Then I try to sort of structure each day focused on certain things. For example, on Monday, that's normally the day we meet internally at the district level, different leadership groups. Mm-hmm. Try to keep that on Mondays. Generally speaking, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I try to meet with people from the outside that, that have appointment. We're, we're talking about different issues, whatever. I try to mm-hmm. meet with them on during the day on Tuesdays, uh, Wednesday some during the day. Then I also try to reserve time Wednesdays and Thursdays. Uh, to go out and visit schools because, as mm-hmm. you know, as many as we have, that's a year-long effort to get to right. each one of them. Yeah. Uh, 
And then there's certain things I have that are scheduled certain days a week. There's uh, one one night a month is a school board meeting, and one day during the month there's a during the day school board meeting, the committee of the whole. The superintendents in the state meet the the first Thursday of every month. So tomorrow, the superintendents uh, meet in Columbia. All now there's 84 of us mm-hmm. uh, meet as a group. The first Thursday of every month, except the month of uh, July and August. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but and there are various other things like that. Uh, for example, I'm on the Greenville Tech uh, board, the commissioners for Greenville Tech, mm-hmm. and we meet a certain day each month. On the chamber board, chamber of commerce board, the board of goodwill, we meet certain days. So there's there's some involvement outside. So it's outside the district. It's directly related to my role and responsibilities as a superintendent. So I have those things. And then just the routine work of, of doing this job, just like your job and anybody else's job, there's certain routine work that you have to perform. And I generally try to set aside uh, Fridays to do those kinds of things. Yep. And then, you know, as you know, in, the, in any in any work now, there's this constant email uh, texting, uh, there, there's all this instantaneous communication, and it is, uh, I guess, to, to quote the great literature, it's the best of times and the worst of times, is when it's convenient, yeah, it, it, it's great. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> it, it's but, a great thing, but it can snowball on you real quick. Right, and, and, and you can get so far behind or get so caught up in writing a, a two-page response to an email. Yep. Where you'd have never written a two-page letter to answer somebody, and it had, yeah, I think you also have to guard against letting that replace actually talking to people, whether Mm -hmm. that's on the phone or in person. And I would far rather walk down the hall and talk to somebody about something than either them send me an email or me send them one. Right. You, You you can't tell anything from an email other than the words on the virtual paper that it's on. That's right. So, so I agree with you on that. You, you can't read any, really any inflection into it that mm-hmm. might have been there, nor see any reaction to what you might say. So mm-hmm. it, it's a it's efficient, but some others might perhaps be, some other methods might be a little more effective in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the electronic world, um, do you follow social media? Do you participate in social media? Uh, uh, in, in a leadership position, it kind of almost is like just part of the job, I would imagine. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of the the work related uh, more so on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do a little bit of Facebook, but it's personal. You know, right. Keep keep up with friends, family. Sure. So the generally the work related is something on Twitter, and of course I read that stuff, and uh, you know, you obviously get a lot of news off of Twitter. Uh, and other social media outlets and, and almost every, the professional organizations that I belong to or that anybody belongs to now, they, they send out all kind of electronic information, whether it's text or email or, or blogs or, mm-hmm. so there, there is just all kind of online communication. Uh, mm-hmm. so I try to do that to, to get messages out and to and kind of see what reactions are out there. But, uh, you know, not not a huge user, because you can get so caught up in doing that that you don't right. get other 
was done. Exactly. Exactly. Everything becomes an essay. Yeah. That's right. That's what happened. Um, it, okay. So this year we started the virtual academy. We had several, several students, uh, many students actually in the district that have, um, opted for the virtual option. Um, what do you see in terms of the future of education? Um, this is something that I had thought about a lot is, you know, ever since we started to have Chromebooks in the classroom that there was, or laptops, even before Chromebooks, um, that at what point do we, does the culture shift? Um, do you feel like COVID has kind of hastened that or, um, do you think there's always going to be, uh, you know, do you think the, the virtual, the virtual option is something that is going to stay or what, what can you yeah. comment? I, 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 to really start with your last question first, I think it's something that will stay with us. Now, you know, we got 23, a little over 23,000 students in virtual right now. I don't think it'll continue at that level. See. I think it'll be a much smaller number. I think mm-hmm. it will be more heavily skewed at the high school level to some degree at middle school to a little bit at elementary. Much more difficult to do the things you need to do with those students the younger they are. Right. First. Using scissors virtually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and showing it is you can think back. I never taught elementary and I don't know if you ever did or not, but My think back to elementary at some point, you know, a teacher actually put their hand on your hand to help you form the letters. Right. When you yep. were learning how to write. So there's a lot of really hands on that you just can't get. Uh, watching a teacher, uh, say something phonetically. Mm-hmm. hard to do that watching them on a camera do it much easier in person much more easily communicated but when you get students that are older that can function more independently that can uh that don't have to be right in front of somebody to uh to be instructed i think we're going to see some students at the particularly the high school level opt to really do this 100 percent of the time i think we'll have people that want to do part of their classes that way Part of their classes in person. Mm-hmm. I think within a class, you'll see some in person, some at home. You know, we're doing a lot with work experience with students now, maybe some from their actual work site. It yeah. just opens up all these different avenues that I think can be highly effective. Um, the other thing it does is, uh, you know, a student on extended absence that that in the past has had to have a homebound teacher person mm-hmm. go out to their house or up to the hospital back when people stayed in the hospital multiple days. That doesn't happen as often mm-hmm. anymore, but used to, uh, and, and try to catch a student up. And, and most times they not only caught them up, they were ahead when they came back because mm-hmm. they got one-on-one for five hours a week, even if it was all subjects, but I could see this, they might continue to get a lot of what they're missing directly from their classroom teacher by doing it virtually, by being able to live stream in classes. And we don't currently have the bandwidth to do that in every class, every period. I think things like that are a possibility. The other thing that it's done, it's forced all of us to learn how to do things with technology that we would never have done this readily or this quickly left on our own. I don't know that I had much motivation to learn how to do this Zoom or initiate one until I had to do it. Well, now I know how to do it. 
Sometimes you cannot replace face-to-face, but this can replace a lot of face-to-face and make it more efficient. Mm -hmm. And so whether you're working outside the classroom or in the classroom, it brings things into you that are just more efficiently delivered that way. And in some cases, particularly if you're in a classroom and you're talking about something, you, you know, you can take a virtual tour of, pretty much anything of significance you'd want to tour. Mm-hmm. Well, you could never do that in the real world. You, you can't take a group to, to, to London to tour the, the uh, uh, Buckingham Palace or whatever, the Tower of London or what, anything. Right. To, see, to actually see the pyramids in Egypt. You, you could never have taken people to do that. Mm-hmm. It would be like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, now you can virtually take them there. Right. Uh, you know, we're building a new, uh, a new high school down at Fountain Inn. Yep. Interested in that. You can go and take a virtual tour. You could do it before we, before we turn the first scoop of dirt down there. Hmm. You could go tour the plans in three dimension virtually. At some point, you'll be able to do the same thing inside that building. Uh, just, just, just like, I don't think it would replace, for example, your meet the teacher night. No. Yeah. That, well, that was something could, that happened this, this year was like, it, it just, it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite the same. You just need to meet, you just need to meet people face to face. But what it does do for those that couldn't be there, you now have a way to meet them face to face. Not, not as effective, but you know, there's always some that, that just couldn't be there. Right. I'm not talking about the ones that didn't put forth an effort. Sure. They just couldn't be there. Right. Well, th- this is a way to do that. Mm-hmm. It would be a way to have them during the year if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. It just opens up these avenues that are so much easier to initiate. But because mm-hmm. we're, we're not all as well versed in this, uh, it's not something we probably would have readily done, but now we have to do it. So it gives us the idea, well, you know, this thing I've always done this way, I might could do it through this media mm-hmm. and it'd be much more efficient and I reach many more people. Um, I, I, you know, where do you sometimes talking one to one to a parent where you can't get them face to face because of their schedule, your schedule? This is the net, this is better uh, to me. This is better than the telephone, not as good as in person, mm-hmm. but at least, uh, you know, right now you and I are talking to your, your audience can't see us, but I can see you and you can see me. Right. That's so helpful. There's just going to be a lot of uses that I don't think we would have necessarily just initiated on our own. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the trades fit into this? I know that we have, we have the technical schools and, um, you know, I know like Jay Harley Bonds. Um, they have fantastic, uh, programs there. Um, do you see that, do you see that growing in the future? We do. You know, we've had, we've had huge growth in all of our career and technical programs. Uh, near, nearly a thousand percent growth mm-hmm. over the last several years. Uh, and, and they do a number of things virtually. For, for example, one of the, uh, one of the instructional methods in welding when they start out is they're virtually mm-hmm. welding. 
in fact, when they have their exhibits, when they exhibit, we've done this career day for middle school students for uh, the last few years. Uh, probably going to have yeah. to kind of reconfigure that this year. But that's mm-hmm. one of the things they do. You go by and see the career centers. They'll let you go in there and and and, and do the well, the virtual well. Uh, so there's all kind of virtual applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was in a firefighting class down at uh, at Donaldson the other day, and the instructor it was it was it was the day before 9/11. Uh, so he was talking about uh, FDNY, the New York Fire Department's response to 9/11. And so had all these, uh, slides, pictures, all this virtual, the video, everything. So instead of just telling this story, he was showing them the story and telling them the story mm-hmm. in a much more vivid way than, than even back when I was in school and they showed a movie or, mm-hmm. or, or you could watch a video and TV because mm-hmm. you could actually bring in all these resources that you never would have been able to bring in before. Mm-hmm. So uh, back to you. Um, have who's been your mentors, um, man, uh, coming through this process of becoming superintendent? Do you, do you, uh, I'm sure you have some people that stand out. Um, yeah, you know, uh, in, in of course, in looking back in in my in my youth and even up until the time I became a district level administrator, uh, and my dad passed away. Uh, in 2008, but up until that time, my, my dad would have been one of those people. Uh, and, and really, over the years, every person who I've worked directly for, whether it was Fred Woods at uh, at Montevue or Earl Loveless at Northwestern, my first principalship, I was the first principal at Waccamaw High School down in Georgetown County. Mm-hmm. The superintendent down there that hired me, Cliff Dodson. Uh, when I went to, when I first went to Oconee County as principal at Seneca High and then later as an assistant superintendent there, the superintendent, uh, Buddy Herring, uh, who is now retired and serves on the school board over there. Uh, and, and, and Penny Fisher, uh, when I came here. Uh, so all those people have been and, and continue to be mentors. And then superintendents that I know in other districts, uh, people that uh, that I came up kind of, we had similar jobs at the same time, but in different places, but know one another. Uh, I've benefited greatly from those relationships and calling and talking to those people about, you know, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? But I, I've always been uh, most fortunate to work for really good people. I learned a lot from them. And all of them gave me tremendous opportunities to do things. In other words, they would give me a responsibility, but not then tell me how to do it. Just give me that responsibility and let me do it. You know, obviously, if I needed some some guidance along the way, they would provide that. But you know, you learn things by experiencing them and having responsibility for owning how you handle. Uh, those responsibilities. So I, I've been fortunate in that regard too. What uh, is there anything that you wish you would have known when you got your position? Um, I'm beginning to think now. I wish I'd have known what this year was going to look like. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. 
that uh, it, yeah, I, I I think the more experiences we have, the, the the better job we do. So obviously, the if I'd had some experiences earlier, I'd probably done a little better job in some things than I've done. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't really point to something specifically and say I think things happened at the time they happened, and I benefited from them and learned from them and. Uh, and continue to learn today, and and that's uh, that's something we try to do it here at the system level. Is you know we've got really good systems in place for everything we do, but all of them can always be better. So every time something happens, good, bad, or indifferent, if it's just some event, what do we learn from that, and how can we improve our system to either prevent it? Or better respond to it. There's some things you just can't prevent. Sure. But, but you could better respond to it. So it gets into, you know, the old term years ago was continuous improvement. And although that's an old term, it's still a very valid term and something we should always be, uh, seeking. And that's to continuously improve upon what we do. What's your, um, what's your vision for Greenville County? Um, what do you, what do you hope to leave the county with? Well, it, it, it translates into what we're trying to do now. Uh, and I won't say we've been sidetracked by COVID, but it's, uh, it, it's certainly, uh, focused our, our, uh, work in a, in a concentrated way to deal with that. But that was what we came up with several years ago in the vision of students graduating, all of our students being a graduate and leaving us with college credit or an industry certification, or both. And we have had tremendous increases in the number of students getting one or more of those. We call it G+, plus, and I know you, you've, you've heard that mm-hmm. term. We want you to graduate, plus we want you to have one of those things, because that says to anybody that you're college and career ready. What better evidence could you have than to show them a transcript with college credit on it? Mm-hmm. Or to show them a certification that, that certifies you to a national or state standard that you can weld. Or you can be an auto body tech. Or you can be mm-hmm. an interior firefighter. You've proven mm-hmm. you can do it. It's better than any score on any test that anybody's ever developed. Cause it's mm-hmm. not a predictor of your success or your ability. It is evidence. Of your success and your, and your ability in that area. And I, and, and I, I would hope that, uh, we reach a point that it's a hundred percent of every graduate we have walks across the stage with one or both of those plus credentials. Well, I certainly appreciate your time. Uh, I'd like to follow up or finish up the, uh, the interview with the question, which is the name of the podcast. So, uh, Burke Royster, what is the big deal about Greenville? It's, just, it's a great place to be. It's a, it's a tremendous community. Uh, there is this large amount of community support for all things Greenville, whether that's Greenville County Schools or any of the other efforts that are undertaken. When we talk about Greenville, we're not about the whole of Greenville, but all the Greenville. There are various communities, Travers Rest, Greer, Simpsonville, Malden, Fountain Inn, City of Greenville itself, Uh, but this greater Greenville that 
that's woven throughout the fabric of the whole county. People have great pride in their community. They're very welcoming and they're very supportive of the positive things that go on. And, and I think that is that is that is our greatest asset. And that, that to me is what's great about Greenville. People are willing to be involved. They're willing to contribute to the public good. And that's a great environment to be in. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It. Enjoyed it. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Kammer. And over the last few months, I've had a lot of fun producing this show. I'm an educator and realtor here in Greenville. And you've probably guessed that I love my town and I want others to know what's great about it. If you'd like to call Greenville home, please contact me. My email address is in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Artwork is by Corey Godby. Music is licensed by Storyblocks Audio. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, please email me at thebigdealgreenville at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, y'all.